Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm here with Mario Cosillo Olavide to talk about Don Juan Manuel, an authority in medieval Iberia. Mario is a research affiliate in the Center for Medieval Studies at the University of Minnesota. He is a specialist in medieval Spanish literature, and his research focuses on 14th century medieval Spanish literature with a special emphasis on Don Juan Manuel. Welcome, Mario. Hey, Brett, how are you? I'm doing well. It's good to have you here. So I thought to start it off, we could kind of really begin with this question of who was Don Juan Manuel? Why, why is he so important? What's kind of his role in society in general? Well, uh, to talk about Don Juan Manuel, we have to have to talk about other people that came before him and to get like a general panorama of what's going on in Castile at the time and how it leads to him. So I'll allow myself to, to talk about what's happening in Castile in the past, in the century just before him, in the 13th century. As you know, around 1230, the kingdoms of, of Castile and Leon just unified under one king, Fernando III, uh, the conquest or reconquest, as depending on how you want to call it, of Muslim Iberia is well underway, and things are looking rather good for the Castilians. Fernando has several sons, and two of them are really relevant for Juan Manuel's history. The first is the next king, Alfonso X. And when Fernando dies in 1252, and with the kingdoms under check, Alfonso, who eventually will also aspire to be emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, starts fostering a massive cultural renaissance in Castile. Under his supervision, we see this massive effort of translation and composition of all sorts of books. We have astrology books, magic, natural sciences, didactic literature, political treatises, hunting manuals, manuals, books of games, religious and profane poetry, and above all, these two genres that he privileges, if we can call them that, because they're really broad and complex, and where he is ciphering his vision of what Castilian monarchy should be. His legal codes on one hand, that are too many and too complex to discuss in detail, and his historiographical, historiographical projects on the other hand, that is, books of history. One of the world and the other of Spain, since God's creation of Earth until him. Talk about ego, right? <laughs> so the other son of Fernando that I mentioned was Manuel, of whom we know just a little bit. However, Richard Kincaid has a fascinating book called Dawn of a Dynasty that is focused solely on Manuel's life. Well, Manuel was the younger brother uh, of Alfonso, and he served the king in several capacities. He was ambassador to Rome, he was negotiator when the nobility rebelled against the king. When things got complicated, he was the handyman, a jack of all trades. And the good thing for him is that, unlike Alfonso's other brothers, he lacked the ambition of power that tends to complicate things when you're the brother of the king. So he got a lot of benefits that the unruliest brothers didn't, like lands and rents, and only until uh, at the end of Alfonso's reign, when things got really complicated for the king with the rebellion of most of the nobility, and as Kincaid points out in his book, and after Alfonso started affecting the privileges that Manuel had received during his life, taking some of his lands, he jumped ship and took the side of Infante Sancho, Alfonso's son, who uh, had the support of the nobility and went to become king in 1284. So, this Manuel is father to Juan, that we call now Juan Manuel, 
born only two years uh, before the beginning of the reign of Sancho, and went to became, as I was saying, one of the political key figures of the kingdom. And only after his death, he started to be one of the literary stars of the Castilian letters. Uh, he was raised in the court of Sancho IV, of whom I'll probably be able to talk later. And when Sancho dies and leaves a 10-year-old at the helm of the, of the kingdom, Fernando IV, he becomes more and more involved in Castilian politics. During the royal minority, a, regis, a regency committee is formed, composed by high-ranking members of the royal family, and, and I'm, now I'm talking about uh, Fernando. Fernando is a rather uh, weak and short-lived king that dies when he's 26, and his reign is managed by the wills, and to a certain extent by the tricks and tricks of his regions. Is this Fernando IV? Fernando IV, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be jumping between Fernandos and Alfonsos mm-hmm. now. Um, so when Fernando dies in 1312, he leaves another kid king, uh, this time a baby king, Alfonso XI, who is just nine months old or something like that. So a story repeats itself during Alfonso's minority. The regents are his uncles, rule the kingdom, abusing more often than not their powers, and they use it to their advantage. And while all of this is happening, we're talking about Fernando's kingdom, uh, Alfonso's 11th kingdom, Juan Manuel is participated in this world of political chaos. And he's forced to see how the once flourishing Castilian court is being dismantled by the wheels of this rebellious nobility and weak kings. We don't know when, but probably during these early years he also takes on reading, a pastime that will always be mentioned in his texts, or rather being read as it was common for nobility at the time. Uh, his favorite author, you guessed, Alfonso X, <laughs> the, the king of culture. But he's still part of the royal family, and he's a rather powerful member of the royal family. He's rich, his father left him a lot of lands from, that he gained from Alfonso X. So in 1319, when two regents die in battle in Granada, Juan Manuel, Juan Manuel chips in in the political game and declares himself regent of the king. Hmm. He's tutor for the, of the king for around six years. So the king reaches 15, he's no longer a minor, and there's a succession of events and intrigues that leads to Juan Manuel becoming more and more distanced from him. And eventually that leads to a rupture between them in 1325. Um, he, he does awful stuff, both do awful stuff. Juan Manuel breaks the Lord-Vassal relation, so basically saying, I'm no longer your subject, mm-hmm. you are no longer my natural lord, and I don't recognize you as such, so oh. I can war with you. And this is after Alfonso, he imprisoned Don Juan Manuel's daughter yes. or something like that. There's like a weird kind of story there. There's a lot of political subplots because mm. he's too powerful when he's a tutor. So after he stops being a tutor, the king offers him marriage to his daughter. He, the king says, I'll marry your daughter. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he orders one of his closest allies to be killed, Juan El Tuerto. Mm. And then Juan Manuel, and he gets him also a charge, like a ministry, the equivalent of a modern day ministry in the frontier with the, with the Muslims of Granada. And Juan Manuel is happy, but everything falls down. He kills his, his uh, friend, he puts his daughter in, in a castle, and then obviously war. So he declares war with him. He and I think that's totally fair. I mean, I think if someone put my daughter, who he was supposed to marry, in prison, and then married someone else as well, like immediately thereafter. Yeah, and, and like she already signed as queen of the of Castile. He was signing of like padre de la reina, so father of the queen. Ooh. 
And so after a couple of years, they reconcile. There's a lot of uh, ecclesiastical negotiations going on. But 10 years later, everything happens again. Hmm. And the thing is that Alfonso is not a weak king. He seems to be one because he comes from a, he's coming from a regency and he wants to prevent what happened to his dad before because his dad was handled by this nobleman. So he makes every effort to curb the power of the more powerful noble families of Castile. And he starts building up this new royal power that is sustained not by the top of the aristocracy, mm -hmm. but by this lower and often newer nobility, the Caballeria Villana, the Nobleza Villana, like the nobility that is actually no noble by birth, that is granted nobility. But Juan Manuel is no your average Joe nobleman who you can just force to give off his power. He's part of this extended royal family. He's a powerful magnate, um, and he has a lot of territories, castles, soldiers in Castile, and also in Aragon. So he's an economic and military force, and he's also the son-in-law of the King of Aragon, because he's married to Constanza, the daughter of the King of Aragon, James II, and he's also the father-in-law, he will eventually be the father-in-law of the Infante of Portugal, when his daughter marries Pedro. So he is a force to be reckoned with. And around 1340, he starts growing tired of this fighting and eventually accepts to submit to Alfonso's will. He dies around 1349, and we know not a lot about his later days. Now, for all Alfonso XI and Juan Manuel disagreed in political terms, and this is what, why they are both important, not only Juan Manuel, they agreed in seeing the past, and particularly Alfonso's time, and aspired to lead Castile to a similar period of cultural and social development. So while the king had this professional team, and I'm talking about Alfonso the 11th, not the 10th now. He had this professional team of historians and functionaries that were responsible for writing his, history, his vision of history in chronicles, laws, romances, everything, starting around 1335-40. Around 1312, Juan Manuel starts doing the same, but, as everything points out, he does it in a more personal fashion, collecting his thoughts and, dedicate, and dictating books himself. Um, so yeah, I was hoping now we could kind of maybe segue a little bit and kind of talk about what you kind of get into there at the end, right? This idea of kind of collecting his thoughts and also the way of kind of making his mark kind of on the cultural scene, making his mark on kind of the literary scene. So I mean, as much as important as he was as a nobleman, if he never wrote anything, we'd have no, we wouldn't be talking about him really today. So maybe if you could kind of talk a little bit about his importance on kind of the literary scene and his role in kind of medieval Spanish literature more and more broadly. Well, yeah. But first, we have to expand our idea of literature, because um, in Juan Manuel's time, and as you know it really well, literature is not fictional stories. It's not like your novel or your short story collection. It's much more, because literary genres are being defined at this time. Literature can be also history, religious poetry, political works, compendia of proverbs, geographical description, travel logs, you name it. Hmm. I mean, it's basically anything that distracts and entertains the reader, but also teaches him something new and useful. There are indeed some classifications of what a fable is and what a historical work should be, but more often than not, we're like seeing numerous genres, genres overlapping in the same work. And that being said, Juan Manuel writes books, uh, but what he does in his books is picks up genres that are popular for him when he's growing up, and most of them are coming from Alfonso tenth and Sancho IV's cultural milieus, and like, frame tale collections, which mm. are like these collections of stories that are nested with, within each other. Mm -hmm. If you think of the Thousand and One Nights or the Arabian Nights, that's a frame tale collection. 
he picks romances, uh, moralizing Christian romances, chivalric stories, political menus, manuals, you name it, and he starts crafting new manual with them, new content with them. So he's re reinterpreting the culture of his past and trying to explain his present, which all writers do. His first books are more idealistic. We have the Book of the Hunt, which is basically a hunting treatise mm -hmm. with falcons. That is a veterinarian and hunting treatise, but it's mixed with a big anecdote collection of the kings of Castile. Mm. So you're not just getting your how to hunt manual, you're also learning how the kings hunted. Thank God. Yeah, and so you go to Fernando III and Alfonso X and Fernando IV, everyone is named there. Mm. And then we have the book of the knight and the squire, which is... Uh, follows a really popular story by Ramon Jul, uh, this Mallorcan writer. There is basically a story of an old knight that meets a young squire that wants to be a knight. Mm. And the knight teaches the squire how to be, what he needs to do in order to, to attain that. And it's like a moral, it's a tale of moral persecution. It's a path that the squire has to follow. But he carves that content out and turns it into a manual on how to be a good knight, how mm. to be a good knight. He does that with the following one, which is called the Book of the States, which in its core is the history of the life of Buddha, a Christianized version of that. So there is a powerful king that has a son, and the son wants to know the world. So, the life of Buddha. And what he does is grabs this legend of the life of Buddha that had been already Christianized in Castile and in Latin Christendom, and carves that content out and makes it a book on how to be a good king. So he is basically using narratives, but in this, inside of the narratives creating stories that are related to his own political reality. It's not just fiction for the sakes of reading something that will make you happy. It's more like this is important to form an educated elite, but also an educated ruling class. Uh, but his most famous work is the Book of Examples, or the Libro de los Enciemplos, which is basically a conversation between a nobleman and his counselor, and during the whole conversation, the counselor tells uh, the count, the nobleman, 50 moralizing tales that help him find solutions to the problems that he faces in his life. That's a model that Juan Manuel gets from Arabic frame tale collections, mm -hmm. where this genre is really popular. And some of the stories are just fascinating. We have like the story of a dying Genovese or Genoese that wants to bribe his soul back into his body, or this version, this gore version of the Taming of the Shrew that Juan Manuel creates mm -hmm. before Shakespeare. The singularity of his work, of this work in particular, is twofold because um, we can attribute the books to him not only because he's naming himself, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about whole collections, not just the last one, but like all the books he wrote, he names himself in the prologues. They mo most of them have prologues and he goes and claims authorship there. And he says, I, this book was made by me, Don Juan Manuel, in order to whatever. But he also finds ways of inserting himself into the narratives. And he does that either by making one of the book's characters related to him, we see that in the Book of the States, or by a character at the end of the book turning and saying something, and so Patronio asks Juan Manuel to write this book for him. So he's like this meta-creator, it's like this... It's like Deadpool, basically. It's, he <laughs> knows, but he's like a really courteous and courtly Deadpool. He knows that he... His characters know that are in the fiction and they talk to the author, which is unusual in the Castilian prose. Not in all in medieval prose, but yes, in Castilian. 
So a while ago I said something that he was using the past to interpret the present, and he's transforming a lot of materials that had appeared during Alfonso's and Sancho's time, but only as a product of translations from Arabic, Latin, I'm sorry, from Arabic, from Latin, from French. And this is the second remarkable aspect, and with this I want to finish. Well, we have translations before him. He is one of the first identifiable authors, and this is important, because we know a lot of other figures, but we don't know their names. We don't know who they are. Mm. He's an historical figure. We have records of him. And he's one of the first identifiable authors who creates without translating. So he might be using things he heard or read somewhere, but he's not translating line by line. His tales, his fables, are completely different from the source materials. In, a sense, in that sense, he's really innovative for Castilian letters. So I, I was saying a while ago that he's one of the first identifiable authors, and I'm not saying that he's the first author. By all means, there's a lot of clergymen. So he's one of the first legos, as he identifies himself, like non-educated, non-ecclesiastical characters that he's writing, and that's why he's rather important. I'm really, I'm, I'm struck by this idea, this um, kind of what you're talking about being this, the way that he is identifiable, the way he kind of works himself into the text, right? The fact that he is kind of his family members are there, he's there himself, you know, you have Petronio telling, you know, Cordelio Cunote to kind of, you know, to, to reach out to him. He's kind of interacting in this really interesting way, this kind of Deadpool-like way, as, as you put it. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit more about the way that we see his life interacting with his work, the way we see kind of his life shaping some of these works in, in, in some way. First, let's think that when he's starting this, he's 39. Like, he starts mm -hmm. his first book when he's 39. <laughs> that makes me feel great. As the, <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> As Diego Cantalan points, like, he's, he's old. He's not, and by medieval standards, that's an old, not, not old decrepit, but it's old. Like, there's Isidoro of Seville, this, uh, this authority of medieval Castile, and he says that Juan Manuel by this time should be in the fourth age of men, that it is a man that Alfonso X calls mature. So, if by 50 he should mm -hmm. be dead, because most noblemen don't reach 50 at this time, he has experienced a lot of things, and mm -hmm. they just go into his narratives. There's a lot of overlap between personal history and overlap. Like, we see this happening a lot in the Book of Estates. There's episodes, whole episodes, where one of the characters talks about how he has been with Juan Manuel all his life, mm -hmm. and how when Juan Manuel, he left Juan Manuel the last time, he was waging war against the king of Castile, waging war against the king of Aragon. Um, or how he remembers when Juan Manuel was a kid, his mother educated him in such a form. Mm. So there's anecdotes that mark the, the narratives because he doesn't want to use other persons. He doesn't want to use authorities, which is a rather common huh. phenomenon in medieval thoughts. In medieval literature, you have people saying, like, Lucan said, this is what happened mm -hmm. in the old history of, of, of Rome, like Isidore of Seville or Lucas de Tui or Jiménez de Rada says, Juan Manuel is, well, kids should be fed uh, the milk by their mothers. They should be breastfed. Mm -hmm. Because, this is said by one of his characters called Julio, because, as my friend Juan Manuel, that I have talked to you about mm -hmm. before, says, one night he was hungry when he was a kid and a uh, and one of the matrons of his mother breastfed him, and when his mother came to him, he knew that something had happened, so he grabbed him by the leg, pulled him, and started slapping him until he vomited all the milk. And every time after that, that Juan Manuel did something wrong, he knew it was because he had been breastfed by a vile woman. Huh. So he's like marking the narratives with 
really interesting types of stories. And yeah, that's such an interesting anecdote. I mean, just there's so many that, that's so so rich. There's just so much that he's saying about society and about kind of looking at the nature of yeah. I mean, just looking at where things like knowledge comes from and also nobility as well. I yes, mean. it's um, but he's creating his own. I mean, there's this whole discussion about like what is Almanor's ideology? Like, is he a rebellious guy just for the sake of being rebellious or not? But he's enriching his discourse, which we have to approach in many different ways, with personal narratives. And this this type of intellectual maturity allows him to create something that can depict really well the most turbulent episodes of Castilian mm. history. And that doesn't happen often with chronicles, because the historians that write them are associated with a particular project, but they're also not trying to represent like the difficult times. Like We see what uh, an Argentinian scholar called Leonardo Funes in Juan Manuel's um, literature, and we see something called his decent view on, on Castilian history because he introduces his, these personal narratives in his books. So I want to change gears a little bit here, um, and I'd like to kind of get into some of your recent research. Um, so I know some of your recent work has been dealing with this figure of this this royal counselor, right? This kind of yes. this this royal this kind of this figure that gives kind of advice to to royalty. This kind of this this relationship with with one's counselor, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how we see this figure being represented in Don Juan Manuel, and then also a little bit about how this kind of breaks with tradition. So kind of how how we see in Don Juan Manuel and how it's different from what came before. Well, I would love to be able to say that he's unique and different, <laughs> but in a sense that he pretty much falls, I, I feel that he pretty much falls in line with, ha with what has been written in Castile about counselors in the past. Mm. So let's start, like, in the courtly environment, you need someone to, tells you, to tell you how to act, because power corrupts, and mm. power also sh cuts your field of view. So the noblemen, uh, I'm sorry, the counselors are a figure that appears in, in, in what we call wisdom literature, this genre of how to teach to be a proper person, and in political treatises, since the Greeks, and probably before that. And in Castile, in Alfonso's time, there is a lot of writing about noblemen. You have figures like Aristotle, who is advising Alexander all the time, because in Greek literature, Aristotle was Alexander's teacher and pedagogue. Um, you have uh, books of uh, Arabic, transla Arabic translations, like Alila and Dibna, um, that are basically talking about figures that are counselors to kings, and Juan Manuel kind of is influenced by this thought. More, not only by Alfonso's narrative that have been discussed and studied like in extent by like 20th century scholars, but from his son, Sancho IV, and mm -hmm. Maria de Molina. And this is rather interesting. Uh, Sancho and Maria, when, when Sancho accesses, when Sancho's accession to the throne means a substantial change because in, in the cultural system, because he's not the heir apparent of the throne. Mm -hmm. He's not the firstborn. He's the secondborn. And he's able to claim the throne because the firstborn died, right? Sure. So the firstborn had children. Yes. <laughs> and in, in medieval political theory, they should be kings, mm -hmm. but Sancho doesn't think so. And a large part of the nobility doesn't, because uh, the kings, they want to prevent uh, Alfonso's aspiration of like dominating the nobility mm -hmm. to be made through his kid, his sons. Uh, so Sancho revolts against his father, against the support of all the nobility, and but after his name king he needs le legitimacy. 
and for this he depends on the figure of the counselor hmm. because the advisor is the one that makes a king just and makes a king pious and makes a king good right yeah. um, and this term that Gomez Redondo Fernando Gomez Redondo this authority in medieval Castilla has written like probably just around 6,000 pages in, <laughs> in six volumes and he's making more volumes about medieval Castilian poetry names this ideology Molinismo the, the thought of Maria de Molina, the, the queen of, of Sancho IV. Because it's an intellectual reconfiguration of the environment, especially of the courtly environment in Castile, uh, during Sancho's tenure and when he dies with Maria, because she becomes re the regent queen uh, during the reigns of Fernando IV and Alfonso X, eleventh until he, she dies. Counselors are key figures to teach kings, to educate them, but also to transmit them a set of moral guidelines because they need a moral guidance they, to embody this ideal vision of mm -hmm. what order and what court should be, and by doing this, achieving legitimacy, and by achieving le legitimacy, preventing the state from collapsing. So it's like everything is tied up. The just king is the center of the, of the court, but around him there's layers of advisors. Okay. I can say without a doubt, though, that Juan Manuel he is innovative in how he deals with advisors, mm -hmm. because... There's a tradition of books before him, the castigos, the punishments, or mm -hmm. the ad advices, counsels of Sancho IV, the book of, of counselors and counsel, the Caballero Cifar, the book of the Knight of mm -hmm. Cifar. But he's innovative that from Sancho's time we have four or five books that I just mentioned, and they're all written by different people. Mo most of them fall under the umbrella of the same ideological model, the Molinismo, and they all tend to relate to the individual interests of their authors, hmm. and to a certain extent to the political interests of the Queen Mother, right? But what Juan Manuel does, and in this I'm kind of trying to challenge some of the ideas in the field, is to present a progression of the figure of the advisor that relates to his personal and political history, because he's not writing one book and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. He's writing a progression of books. Mm -hmm. So in each one he has a different figure of the advisor, and each figure is a reaction to the events that mark that specific period of his lifetime. Okay. Uh, we have like, an, the first advisor is an advisor for knights. The second advisor is an advisor for kings. The third one, when everything falls and he breaks with the king, is an advisor for noblemen because kings cannot be trusted anymore. And the fourth and last one is an advisor that is more intimate. When death is close to him, when he's feeling, I will die soon, I need someone that advises my son. So he creates, he turns himself into an advisor. His la one of his last books, the unending or unfinished, unending is more like it, the unending book uh, is a book that teaches his son how to be a nobleman and how to keep and increase his power. So th there's this progression. And in each one, he's also learning how to be a writer. So each advisor is more layered and more mm. nuanced than the previous one. And he's also building a different style. So in each one we find a different uh, writing style and a different set of ideas that all tend to evolve towards this, let's not say pessimistic, but really <laughs> dark view at the end. So I'm hoping to have him change gears a little bit here. Um, you've also written quite a bit about Don Juan Manuel and the way that he depicts Islam and depicts these Muslim rulers um, as well, particularly in El Conde or the, the Book of Examples, as you mentioned. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about his description of Islam in general, and also in what ways it was or was not typical of the time. 
Yes, um, he depicts Islam in Conde Lucanor, but he also does it a bit in the Book of States. Mm -hmm. So let's start with that. It's easier, I think. He has this ambivalent depiction. Like, overall, he has an ambivalent depiction because you might have stories in both of these books that depict Islam and Islamic rulers as somehow complicated and not according to Castilian to Castilian slash Catholic slash Orthodox ideas of La Conquista, but you also have idealized visions, or not idealized per se, like they're good and oh my god they're so good, but more like they can teach you values. Mm. So I think that the key approach for Juan Manuel and Islam, and in most things in the Middle Ages that deal with cultural contact but also religious uh, contacts, should be in a colonialist key. And this has been like spearheaded by David Wax a mm. couple of years ago. He writes this monograph with Brill called Framing Iberia, and he mm -hmm. has just a whole chapter about Juan Manuel and Islam. And he says, or he advances ideas related to Homis Baba's vision on of the colonial projection of mm. the colonizer on the colonized. And that kind of perverse reflection where someone, in this case Juan Manuel, that is actively participating in the efforts of conquering the Muslim Granada, is also at the same time finding Muslim historiographists important, he's finding Muslim rulers available to him as figures where he can extrapolate behaviors that can be later used by Christian rulers. So it's like a weird mirror, almost Lacanian type of reflection, where you okay. see something that you want to have, but you also want to dominate. But in the, this idealized other, and I'm also bringing Bakhtin here because mm -hmm. Bakhtin is super useful, uh, in this other that I see in the mirror, I also see things that I want. Juan Manuel is doing that. He's represented, like in the Book of States, he, he talks about the Muslim military techniques with like great interest mm -hmm. because he's, he's a warrior after all. He's a military leader and he pretty much knows how the Muslims are really good fighters. But on Conde Lucanor, we have scenes where he's talking about uh, waging war against Islam, right? Like, the most just type of war is the war that you do against Islam, he says in, in two stories at least. Mm. At the same time, he's using uh, kings that, that are associated with crusade, with this mentality, to depict rather positive things. So, I mean, so you mentioned some of these kings that are being depicted. I, I think probably most famously, and you've, you've written on this in particular, would be his depiction of Saladin. Yes. Um, so I was wondering if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about who Saladin was, why he'd be important for Don Juan Manuel, and then also maybe, just really quickly, yeah. I mean, you don't, <laughs> it's not an easy task. Yeah, just, you know, just, just a quick overview. <laughs> there's, there's this amazing book by that I refer to anyone that wants to read about Saladin um, that... Anne-Marie Edé, there's a French scholar uh, called Saladin, that it's everything you want to know about Saladin's life, because I'm not going to be able to. <laughs> He's basically an Ayyubid, and this is a dynasty formed by his father, a sultan that is dependent on the Abbasid Caliph, at the moment that where the Abbasid Caliphate is really weak. Uh, and he's the figure that basically conquers the Holy Land, right? He takes the Holy Land. In, there's a famous battle called the Battle of Hatin, and I'm doing a really bad Arabic pronunciation, where he takes the cross of, the true cross of Christ, from the forces of, of the crusading Franks, and he becomes like this larger-than-life figure, because he defeats the crusaders, right? 
Yeah, and there's weird stories as well that he's pulling court with like the cross behind him and the crusaders are forced to come and see the cross and see him. And, and they're not happy. He ends up sending the cross mm -hmm. of Christ to Damascus and then he disappears. So, but back to Saladin. He's like this larger-than-life historical figure that mm -hmm. conquers the Holy Land. And he unifies Islam because up until uh, before him, Islam was divided in Sunni and Shia and you had two caliphates. You had the Abbasid Caliphate and in, in the Middle East, and then you have the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt that didn't recognize the authority of the other, and it's kind of like having two emperors and two empires that say that they're the same thing, right? Like you have... And two popes as well, right? I mean, so the spiritual... Basically, it's having that. It's the Christian equivalent of having that. Mm -hmm. So he conquers Egypt, he turns it into... In, makes it subservient to the... Abbasid Caliph, and he's basically remembered by Christian historiography as the guy that conquered everything. Okay. So, so how does he show up in Don Juan Manuel? How is he used by Don well, Juan Manuel? He's used because he Juan Manuel is reading sources that depict him as a knight, and this is a common thing. Like fifty years after that, it would be the equivalent of having like uh, one of the big bad guys of the 50s or the 60s being turned into a chivalric figure. <laughs> and this happens with Saladin. He's turned into this knight that in some cases is already Christian or mm. goes to Rome and turns, uh, converts himself to Christianity. And Saladin reads him not as a Christian or not as such uh, as a um, potentially convert, but as a Muslim leader. But as an emperor who the, who has the qualities that any king should have. So Damon Manuel depicts him in this way. Yes, mm -hmm. and some have argued. There's a lot of discussion about this. Um, big scholars in the field, like Maria Rosalida de Malquiel, like Daniel Devoto, have argued that Juan Manuel is doing that to mock him, or mm -hmm. that he's having some type of exoticism. Okay. Recently, there's a couple of articles that have been published saying. Yes, this is like this is exoticism at its best, or at its worst. He's mocking Muslims. I don't agree. I think that Saladin is being used as a positive figure because, and this is something that is common in, in medieval uh, stories, you cannot depict a good king that is not your own king unless you make it really far away, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're trying to criticize your own times, you're not going to say, oh, because we have a bad king, so this is how we should have like a good king. You try to make him like... Shakespeare is not happening in England, it's happening in Poland, right? Like mm -hmm. Hamlet or in Rome, because that's the way to introduce political criticism. Mm -hmm. You try to make things far away. And the best way for, for him is to use Aladdin, this trans-Mediterranean figure, where he can cipher virtues of shame, because he's in one of the stories, someone that learns that shame is the best, yeah. best quality of a man, a valor that he searches for knowledge, which is also a big thing in Islam, but in this case, Juan Manuel is not using Islamic sources. And he's also an educated figure that hands, that reads, that is wise, has good advisors, recognizes the good qualities in people that are not part of his religion, because he, in one of the stories, he has a Christian advisor, mm. and he treats him well, because he's a good advisor, independently of his faith. So I think that Juan Manuel is using him as a mirror, ideas I was talking about mm -hmm. before, like, I want to become more like this. So yeah, so it's like you're kind of projecting the ideal Christian prince onto yes. a Muslim ruler as a kind of this, this safe space where you can kind of create this ideal ruler without engaging with someone who either 
is historically viable or maybe a rival or something along those lines. Like if you do that with Alfonso X, then you're doomed because yeah. Alfonso is a charged political figure. If you do that with anyone after him, mm. then your head is on the line. Yeah, I think but the if, last one you could do that's probably Fernando the Third, right? El Santo. Yes, and Fernando, everyone, and he mm. does that. He has Fernando El Santo here and Fernando El Santo there, or El Cid or Fernando Gomez, where mm. are like important figures, but they're already myths. Yeah, and so they're safe. Yes. The only other characters that are Muslim that appear here are like Al-Mutamid, which is a king mm. of the Taifa of Seville. Mm -hmm. This is like in the 11th century. And then Al-Hakam, that is also the Caliph of Cordoba in the 10th century. Mm. So there are kings of the Muslim kings of, of Iberia, but they're past kings, right? Yeah. They are hardly mentioned and they're not really described in the Chronicles of Spain. Like, it's not Almanzor, that is like the guy that <laughs> goes to Santiago and takes the, the, takes the, bells. the, the bells and writes with them back. No, we're talking about figures that are positive, that okay. Juan Manuel can project good things on them. So, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this larger context as well. So, I mean, this is, I mean, with Saladin, you're talking about Egypt, you're talking about the Middle East, you're talking about the Eastern Mediterranean. So, I'm just wondering how we see some of these stories fitting within kind of this larger Mediterranean context as well. There's this... But you know him probably, Fernand Brodel, this French historian mm -hmm. that is like fostered an age of, of Mediterranean discovery because uh, the Mediterranean serves like as a massive highway of ideas. And then mm -hmm. we have uh, the Schleff Domo Goitien that talks about Mediterranean crossings. He's a scholar of the Genisa of El Cairo, a Jewish scholar of the Genisa of El Cairo, or of Cairo in English, sorry. Connell kind of makes sense. Because he's a figure of Castile, right? And he's talking with all these Mediterranean narratives. What I found when I started reading him and approaching the scholarship about him is that most of them made the emphasis on his Latin Christendom, Christendom uh, links, which mm -hmm. are there because he's using the sermons of Jacques de Vitry, he's using the, the medieval uh, sermon collections and the tales that are there, the Greek, and sorry, the Greco-Latin uh, advice literature, you have some fables of Aesop, but he's also this Mediterranean figure, but he wasn't pictured as that. Mm -hmm. Like, he has a lot of histories about crusade, but historiography didn't picture him as someone that engaged in this dialogue with larger narratives that, mm -hmm. than him, because he's of Castile, right? And yeah. Castile is landlocked. Uh, it is. It's, uh, at least ideologically, it's landlocked. It, it's, it's isolated from the Mediterranean. Right? So, I mean, where we have the coast is not looking towards the Mediterranean. But Alfonso, you have Alfonso X, who is like basically competing with the memory of Frederick II, the emperor of, of the Holy Roman Empire, and they're like doing projects that are really similar. Mm -hmm. Laws, history, hunting books, like... Well, this title, you know, the wonder of the world, right? This is yes. what Alfonso wanted to be, which Frederick was, and, and all this. But this, this puts Castile in this larger Mediterranean mm -hmm. dialogue, and Juan Manuel is like the best exemplification yeah. of that, because he's taking all of these sources and refunding them in one book, yeah. as later you will see like Boccaccio doing and Dante, and I don't want to negate the possibility that he could be read in this large trans-Mediterranean mm -hmm. uh, reading, if that's redundant, because we have for too long considered him just a Castilian figure, mm -hmm. and also because he becomes, in historiography, in literary historiography, one of the founding figures of Castilian literature. Yeah. So he tries to be, he's tried to be kept as pure as possible, the same way that for a long time the Cid was, right? Mm -hmm. The Cid, the Castilian hero of the Reconquista, and the Cid is like mm -hmm. dressing as a more like, you have the exaggerated movie with Charlton Heston, but yeah. 
he is. Uh, he's a bit of a hero that shares more than one identity. Juan yeah. Manuel, he's living in Murcia, and Murcia was Muslim 30 or 40 years before. So you have, uh, no, actually a bit more, because it's, it's with Fernando III. Yeah. But you have a larger Muslim population. Mm -hmm. You have like things that are, people that are still in contact with the South, with Muslim Granada, and with the Islamic East. I mean, I think also looking geographically where Murcia is as well. I mean, Murcia does have, yeah. has Mediterranean ports like Cartagena, yeah, for yeah. instance. Um, also, it's between Aragon and also between Granada. So it is kind of within Castile as well. It's a space that is a little bit more, this kind of frontier space, a little bit more kind of, maybe the boundary is a little bit more porous as well. Yes. So last topic I, I would like to discuss with you today is one of the one of the articles that you have out um, fairly recently. You talk about the translation and the way we see El Conde Lucanor in particular being translated. And you were talking a bit about the way we see this translation in Portugal. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about about this, about these translations in the late 14th, early 15th centuries, and maybe kind of address who's doing the translating, who are they for, so what's the intended audience, and also maybe look a little bit about why it's being translated as well. Yeah, well, this is the holy grail, because <laughs> we, we have Lucanor and we have Juan Manuel in Castile. We know of one copy, at least, in Aragon. Portugal has been never under the radar, and like I find... I found a while ago a friend of mine that sent me this list of books of the Catholic that belonged to King Duarte, Edward II of mm. Portugal, or no, Edward I actually. But, uh, among these books are one copy of Juan de Lucanor, and I'm like, huh, where is this going to? So I start digging into Portuguese historiography, and I find indeed that there was at some point one copy of, 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 his, of Juan Manuel's books, and I start questioning myself, like, if there's any trace of that. and if there were just one book, the Conde Lucanor, mm -hmm. or like the whole works of him. So, as I said a while ago, his daughter marries into the royal mm -hmm. family of Portugal. Like, Constanza Manuel, or Constanza actually, marries Pedro, who will become eventually Pedro I, but his Infante Pedro at that time. And she dies after childbirth of their fourth child. So, oh, wow. so there is like 10 years of marriage, four kids, and Constanza lives in Portugal, but apparently Juan Manuel visits him, her because there are some chronicles that mention that being in the in the agreement between him and the king of Portugal, and like knowing his personality, knowing his like he wanted to be king. He wasn't king because he was born to a second uh, branch of the fi royal family. So knowing these things, I will, I asked myself if he at some point sent the books hmm. to Constanza, right? Like you're the dad, you have finished the books, and he finished his last book in. 1340, Constanza gets married in 1338, so there's like a two-year window where he can edit the books and then like get them out to her, and I wondered, I asked myself if he had done that, so I started digging in, in the Portuguese archives, and I found some, found some chronicles, he appears in chronicles that are made later in the 15th century, he actually appears in one book by King John I, a book of hunting with animals, on a section that talks about how to teach dogs huh. to behave. And he brings to collation a quote from Conde Lucanor that has to be on how to teach noblemen to behave. <laughs> so he's being read. And later he appears in Royal Chronicles. And actually the, the, his, the, the whole story about the Royal Chronicles is something too long to discuss, but it's, it's a chronicle just creates a fake event and he uses Lucanor because who would the Castilians know except Lucanor, <laughs> right? 
And then we see a copy of him that survived. Actually, it's more like a fan art uh, sketch that appears in a Portuguese text. Some uh, a Portuguese scholar in 1989, I think, found it, transcribed it. It's like a five or six nine thing that was actually mistranscri mistranscribed. And I did a, a retranscription and I corrected some important errors that changed the meaning of the text. But basically, we have a proof that he was being read. Not only in the court, mm -hmm. as it has been often the case with him, but outside of, of courtly mm -hmm. environment. Like in this case, in a church, in the monastery of uh, San Pedro de Alcobaza in Coimbra. So we have Sao Paulo de Alcobaza, sorry, in Coimbra. So we have that happening. And it's important because he's not being, he, he's an important political figure, but he's also an important intellectual figure. Mm -hmm. All the books, all the things that we have talked about, he's trying to create views on power, views. Uh, views on how to construct power, keep power, form power. Mm -hmm. And we see that his books, where he expresses these ideas and where he also expresses a dissonant view on, on, on history, are books that are being read by Castilians, by the Portuguese, by the Aragonese in the immediate aftermath of his death. Like uh, he dies in 1349, the same year as Constanza. Mm -hmm. And then we have him being read in Portugal 30 or 40 years later and then in Aragon and then so he doesn't stop being valid and you research a lot of the Trastamaras and mm -hmm. he is known in the Trastamara era he Gomez Redondo has said that he informs the the vision of the of the Catholic monarchs and some mm -hmm. things so his his ideology it's it's quite present and like this Portuguese detour that I took in these translations that have to I mean, Portugal is an understudied thing in terms of Iberianists mm -hmm. in the U.S. Yeah, it's uh, it's like one of the richest cultural areas, but one of the least uh, studied. Well, I'm really, I'm really kind of intrigued by this kind of. I mean, obviously, kind of this connection to power, and also this connection to John the First of Portugal as well. I mean, you have this really interesting political moment where I mean, you have kind of much like we always see with the Transamer, we have this illegitimate son who manages to kind of gain power fight off kind of external rivals, and ultimately kind of begin this new dynasty. So I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about kind of looking at this moment in time, looking at kind of this historical context in ways that maybe that kind of that might connect with Don Juan Manuel, might kind of connect to his work, and might be particularly relevant in this period. I mean, once more, Gomez Rodondo, who's like the Pope in these things, is <laughs> ineffable, has said that he's connected to Enrique II, right? Because mm -hmm. Enrique II is a bastard line to the throne mm -hmm. of Castile. And after he kills uh, Pedro, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he kills Pedro. I'm, I'm confusing all the names of the kings that happened. Pedro the first, El Cruel. Pedro El Cruel. After he kills Pedro El Cruel, he has to build le uh, a legitimacy that he doesn't have. Mm -hmm. The same way as Juan Manuel did. And he sees mm -hmm. some roots of the Molinista thought there, because this also goes back to Sancho, but Juan Manuel is the, the best representative of this I not need to construct a legitimacy mm -hmm. uh, that Sancho builds up and then goes up into the Trastámaras and later on to the Catholic mm -hmm. monarchs. The and, same, and also, I mean, Enrique is married to Don Manuel's daughter. Yes, like, I mean, this, Juana Manuel. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> we don't want to go through those terms mm -hmm. because Juana and Constanza, it would be like, it's too easy to explain mm -hmm. like the blood relation. It's it's uh, it's better to, like, if you just go by blood, it's like everyone's married to everyone at this time, right? Like, they're all interlinked. Mm -hmm. However, not everyone's writing. True. Right. 
But we can um, also see, I mean, a lot of the things that we see, I mean, I think in your writing you talk about El Libro de los Automas, where we have this relation, where we see kind of some of the authority that we see Don Juan Malmaking kind of establishing for himself. We also see these are things that Enrique can kind of really tie directly into. Yes, and also John of, of Portugal, Joao, right? Because he's building legitimacy mm -hmm. after the death of Juan Manuel's, uh, if you want to go by that, Juan <laughs> Manuel's uh, grandson, Fernando I. Yeah. So, yeah, they're all figures that need to do this. The important thing is how they're appealing to narratives that are not the legitimate narratives, mm -hmm. because they have been tainted, right? Like, if you want to build your power, you cannot recur to the guy that was before you, or to his father, or mm -hmm. to his father. You have to go to the decent view. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Joao, he's using one source of Juan Manuel, the Conde Lucanor, in one of his books. But we know he's reading him. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's reading him and remembering him is important. Because he appears among other figures. He appears along Aristotle and Alfonso the Wise. So the same thing is happening with Enrique de Stamera. And he's not the only, now that you just made me think of that, he's not only the only marginal voice in Castillo at the time. Mm -hmm. And an important voice for the configuration of the cultural afterthought of Castillo. We have, and Portugal, the later 14th century, the 15th century, we have also uh, Pedro Alfonso, the Count of Barcelos, right? Yeah who is writing chronicles, who is writing poet or compiling poetry, and are also important in the configuration of, of the new identity of the Iberian courts later on. So, that's really all that I have. I look forward to reading what you come up with in the future. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you, Brett. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. 